Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Perhaps uh, some of you saw the Queen's Jubilee celebrations on TV last week. Uh, I'm an American citizen now, but I still can't help but be drawn back to the motherland, right? The Queen of England was celebrating 70 years on the throne. That is longer than any other monarch, any other king or queen in British history. Over that time, she has worked with 14 different prime ministers. That's like the British equivalent of of the president. 14 different prime ministers have come and gone over the course of her reign. And if you watched any of the, the parades or the celebrations, you no doubt caught a glimpse of the kind of incredible respect and, and honor that the royal family receives. Despite all the scandals, the queen holds this rare place in public life as someone who is treated with astonishing reverence and praise, even at 96 years old. And what I just learned this week is that in addition to all the other titles and roles that she holds, the queen is also referred to as the fount of justice, the fount of justice. Now, this is mostly a symbolic title now, but historically, the first kings of England were very much the true fount or source of all law and order in the country. Right? They were the ones who punished uh, wrong and evil and set things right. All the judges and courts operated under the direct authority of the king, which meant all justice flowed ultimately through the monarchy. And I bring that up because as we turn to the book of Deuteronomy, we see a very similar kind of pattern. Long before the people of Israel had an actual king, God established himself as the true monarch, the true sovereign Lord. And it's in the Torah that he reveals himself as their fount of justice. In fact, God continues to be the only true fount of justice and righteousness in this world, even today, that we can see clearly or or think clearly or act justly is a gift from God himself. So as amazing as the queen may be, in the end, she's just a figurehead, right? She, she doesn't actually do anything. She, she represents a concept or an ideal. But as we're going to see in our passage today, Yahweh is a God who acts concretely in history to redeem his people, calling them out of slavery and into a life of total unwavering commitment to himself. And so the main point today is really quite simply this. Let nothing else come between you and the God who has saved you. Well, first principle uh, is this. The Ten Commandments teach us to love God and to love others. The Ten Commandments are perhaps the most uh, famous part of the entire law of Moses. Right? Charlton Heston never made a movie about Leviticus. Right? At least not that I'm aware of. There may be 613 laws given in the Torah, but the Ten Commandments by far get the most airplay. And with good reason, because these are the only words that God himself spoke audibly to the people of Israel. 
right? These are the words that God himself inscribed on the stone tablets. As you see in verse 22, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Now, all of the Bible is God's word to us, right? All of it is useful for teaching and training in righteousness. But the Ten Commandments are especially significant because they contain direct speech from God declaring who he is and what kind of people that he wants us to be. They're unique in Scripture because God wrote them down himself in stone. They are special because they alone were placed in the Ark of the Covenant, Now, the laws here are both broad in scope and absolute in nature. They're broad in the sense that God doesn't stop to define all the various little minuscule variations and subcategories of each commandment, right? So, in American law, we divide murder into all these different categories. You have first-degree murder, second-degree murder, homicide, reckless homicide, voluntary manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter. And even within those definitions, you have further gradations and definitions. But the commandment here simply says, you shall not murder. And when we get to that commandment, we're going to have to unpack. What, is that, what does that mean? What does that look like in our lives? But as you can see, the sixth commandment by itself is incredibly broad, meant to cover all these variations. But these laws are also absolute, meaning there are no exceptions and limitations given. You cannot talk your way out of them. Now, I remember when I was in college, I got pulled over by the police once for, for speeding, and, and you know, I get out of the car, and you want to see my driver's license and my um, registration and everything else. And at the time, I was driving under, under a British driver's license. I had just moved here. This was totally legal. But uh, our driver's licenses are a little bit different in England. It's this huge piece of pink paper. There's no photograph on it at all. Um, it's very bizarre. So I give him this piece of paper, and he's unfolding it, and he's turning it over, and he's like I, looking at it like, I don't know if it's going to be worth the hassle of trying to figure out how on earth to document all this. So he just kind of scrumples it up. He's like, uh, okay, drive slower next time. <laughs> I'm like, all right, that's fine. <laughs> now, you may be able to talk your way out of a speeding ticket, but you cannot do that with any of the Ten Commandments. You are never going to catch God when he's too busy to really pay attention to what's going on, Right? You can never plead ignorance of the law. You can't claim to have simply had a bad day. And you definitely can't blame someone else. Right? That's a favorite ploy of all of us. It's not just something our kids do. That's something we continue to do as adults. These laws are absolute. They are fundamental to who God is. Now, everyone agrees there are Ten Commandments. After all, that's what we read in Deuteronomy 4.13. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments. Or in Hebrew, it says, really, the Ten Words. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. However, it might be surprising to you to learn that it's been quite a lot of debate 
in history as to how these ten words or commandments should be numbered because they're not labeled for us in Scripture. So we have to come up with some kind of reason or rationale for numbering them the way that we do. So in Jewish tradition, you'll see here someone's collated all these. Uh, it's from the, uh, the King's College in, in New York City. So in the Jewish uh, tradition, uh, verse 6 here, I am the Lord your God, that's, that's the first commandment. And then they lump 7 through 10 uh, into the second commandment and then go from there. Then the Roman Catholic and Lutheran tradition, on the other hand, we see uh, pretty much uh, all of verses uh, up to verse 10 is the first commandment, uh, and making verse 11 the second commandment, which means they now have to squeeze two commandments out of uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, one commandment, and then you shall not covet your neighbor's wife is the second commandment separating those out. Now, finally, we have the Protestant ordering, which you may be most familiar with, where verse 7 is, uh, verse 6 is really a prologue, verse 7 is the first commandment, and then they go down from there. Now, contrary to what you might have heard, that's not just some overreaction to Roman Catholicism. This actually finds its roots in Philo uh, and Josephus in the Eastern Orthodox Church follows the same numbering system. So I bring all this up because I want you to see this is one of those places where tradition does actually have a role to play in our church. Because without God labeling these commandments for us, num- giving them numbers, we are making a judgment call based on our assessment of the Hebrew, but also on the uh, a, a theological tradition that we happen to be a part of. Now, that doesn't diminish the sufficiency of Scripture, right? But it is an appropriate display of theological humility, recognizing the, the insights and the study of thoughtful Christians who have examined the Scriptures before us. So as a result, I, I personally don't see a reason to argue very much about how best we should number these. Because it's all the Word of God, and none of the traditions are, are removing Scripture or adding to Scripture. It does lead to slightly different emphases in, in how you interpret the commandments, but even those are fairly slight. And in the end, it's probably not that big of a deal. Because after all, how you number them in the end is not really even the point. These commands are given to guide our actions and our behavior to help us lead lives that are holy and pleasing to God. In fact, Jesus summed them up uh, simply as this, right? Love God, love others. Easy to affirm, much, much harder to do. So as we go through these commands, even if you can recite all these words by heart, I encourage you to try and look at these uh, 10 words with fresh eyes this summer to spend time in prayerful introspection, to let these words challenge and provoke you into action. Maybe it'll help as we're, as we're going through these commandments that you're so familiar with to sort of ask these kinds of questions in your, in your devotional times. Like what, what specific sin is God revealing to me through this command? Not just, oh, 
Thank you, God. I shouldn't murder someone. Right, great. That's what it says. But, but specifically, Lord, how are you speaking to me through this verse? What sin am I committing that would fall under this category? That you, where, where is there anger in my heart? Bitterness, rage that is bubbling up. Or, or, or perhaps what thoughts and attitudes do you want me to change? Or what, and then finally, what actions is God pushing me to take? That's what these are all driving towards. Action, change in our lives, right? Putting these commands into action, applying them to our lives. So don't let familiarity strip these words of their power. Now our second uh, principle today is that God always takes the first step. God always takes the first step. Now, in Jewish tradition, as I said, the first commandment actually appears in verse 6 in your text, which says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And uh, although the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches include this with verse 7 as part of the first commandment, Protestant traditions have long considered it's really just a prologue a historical introduction to the Ten Commandments, because there is no command in it. But I don't want us to miss this in our rush to get to the sort of thou shalt nots. Like, well, this is just whatever, let's get to the commands, right? Because these words cannot be skipped over. They are vital for establishing God as the sovereign ruler of Israel, who alone has the authority and the power to enact such sweeping, comprehensive legislation. He is a God who acts in time and in space, in the specifics of people's lives. And no act was more significant than their rescue out of the land of Egypt. It wasn't just that God said, hey, I'm calling you to move one geographic location to another. After all, the patriarchs had been moving all over the place. The important part here was that God had rescued them from the clutches of an evil, oppressive king whose power and authority had seemed absolute. The people hadn't just struggled in Egypt, they had been imprisoned in Egypt, slaves to one of the greatest kings of that time. They were powerless and hopeless, but God had not abandoned them. And through many mighty works of power, he broke the chains that had bound them and brought them out of slavery. And God continues to do the same thing in our lives today. So if you're feeling weary and tired from the constant bickering in your home, if you're feeling overwhelmed and exhausted by the demands of your job, if you're feeling stressed out and anxious and overwhelmed at the state of your family, the state of our country, the state of the economy, or the state of your bank account, there is only one solution, only one way out, only one path forward. Because you can't think your way out of these things. You can't work your way out of these problems. Only God can bring you out of that place of suffering and pain and heartache and frustration. Only God has the power to bring you out of slavery to an addiction. 
Only God has the power to bring you out of the stifling clouds of depression. Only God has the power to bring you out of the misery of marital conflict and relational pain. God always takes the first step. He moves first, and until he does, we're not going to go anywhere. And all of that may be true, but that still leaves us with the question, well, now what? What does it look like to trust God that he is indeed moving powerfully in my situation? Well, looking back at our text, God moved unilaterally to rescue the people from Egypt, right? He took the initiative. He took the first step. He did the work. But at the same time, he didn't just magically transport the people to the promised land. Like they didn't go to sleep in Egypt and wake up the next morning in Palestine. They still had to pack their bags. They had to take care of the kids. They actually had to do the work of walking the miles and miles and miles and miles through the desert, stopping for bathroom breaks, dealing with fussy, whining children, trying to avoid the heat during the day, gathering wood, making fires at night, constantly setting up and tearing down their camp. God was moving behind it all to bring them to a place of peace and rest. But there was still work they had to do along the way. And the same is true for us today. I've been doing some marriage counseling with a, a couple recently. You don't know them. It's nobody here in the church. But it's been tough going. There's a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. And it often feels like we're stuck, like there's no pathway forward here. But I firmly believe that God is at work behind it all, and he will eventually bring them to a place of rest and peace. But the thing is, they won't be magically teleported to that place, right? We have hours of counseling ahead of us. There's significant spiritual introspection that these, this couple is both responsible for doing right now. We have lots of scripture that we're studying and praying through. We're practicing the, the art of negotiation and learning what it looks like to compromise. So God moved first to bring them to a place of humility and recognition that, that we need help in our marriage, Right? And God is the one moving them now from slavery to a place of rest. But they have to remain actively engaged and involved in that process. God will change hearts and bring healing, but they have to do the hard work of humbling themselves when they don't feel like it, or practicing forgiveness when they'd rather hold on to grudges and bitterness. That's a hard slog. But if they turn to him for help, God will give them the grace, the patience, and the perseverance that they need to keep putting one foot in front of the other as they head towards the much-hoped-for promised land of peace and rest. Now look, I I get that's a very specific example of, of marital conflict, right? But the principles apply to any difficult situation. God is moving first. God is the one at work behind the scenes, uh, a blessing and encouraging and carrying you through. But there are some other steps that we can be doing in the process as well. So, for example, praying specifically and consistently 
for God to intervene in whatever situation that you find yourself stuck in. Praying for him to change your heart, to change the other person's heart, to change the situation. Secondly, refusing to give up. This is an exercise in, in, in perseverance, right? The people of Israel, they were trapped in slavery in Egypt for decades. We give up after a few weeks, maybe a couple of months. That feels like I'm, I'm, I'm in for the long haul here. Like I've been at this for like a month. It's like, way to go. God is not training us to be sprinters, but to be ultra-marathon runners, right? You've seen these guys who run like 100-mile races. It's crazy, but, but that's more like the kind of work that God is preparing us for, a lifelong commitment to serving Him and following Him and dying to self and living for others. Now, depending on the specifics, you may need to, to choose to forgive or choose to overlook or choose to turn the other cheek. There may be specific changes you have to make. You may need to let go of certain dreams, desires, hopes, or plans. It may be hard work, but God promises to empower our efforts through the work of his Holy Spirit within us, right? enabling us to do what otherwise might seem to be impossible. And for those of you who are like, yeah, you know, I really don't feel like I'm trapped in Egypt right now. Like I'm not in that dark place you're describing. Praise the Lord for that. But you still have a role to play in all of this. Supporting, encouraging, and praying for those people who are. Bringing them meals, right? Taking them out for coffee. Giving them your time. Setting aside your own need to be heard in order to listen to them as they unpack their burdens and concerns. Giving up enough of your own time to move beyond the pat, easy answer of, you know, I'll pray for you, to actually sitting in the dust and the ashes with them. You could probably brainstorm a dozen more ideas for yourself, but this is why we started with this verse before we get into the rest of the commandments, because I want you to see that God took the first step in the lives of the Israelites when they were lost in sin, when they were lost and alone without hope in this world. God reached down and rescued them, and He wants to do the same in your lives also. Now, I'm guessing. Maybe some of you have seen this, uh, this meme before, right? But first, coffee. It's been around for a while now. It's on t-shirts, mugs, baby onesies. I don't know. It's like everywhere. And it's a great summary of my morning routine, right? And my mid-morning routine and my off-to-lunch, mid-afternoon slump routine and most things are, are improved by uh, a coffee, in my opinion. But as we look at this first commandment, this silly meme emphasizing the supreme importance of coffee in my life, it raises an important challenge. So look with me at the text. You shall have no other gods before me. Not even coffee. This is our third principle today. No, set no other gods before Yahweh. Set no other gods before the Lord, before Yahweh. Now in our modern world, this may seem like a no-brainer, right? Like, of 
Of course we have no other gods beside the Lord. We don't really make literal idols, worship uh, them, right? We, we're not trying to actively blend our worship of God with the worship of other false religions, right? So it's like, hey, this is like a gimme right off the bat. God's easing us into the Ten Commandments. We're like, hey, you, you've all got this one, right? But what I want to say is that maybe God is pushing us a little harder on this than we realize. First, what did this mean for the Israelites? Well, other gods for them were a very common part of life. Think about it. They had been born and raised in Egypt, surrounded since childhood with dozens of gods representing the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, the river, uh, uh, um, uh, the, the rain, the grain, just about every part of life represented by, by crocodiles and, and eagles and falcons and cats and everything else. And these gods, they ruled with impunity. They fought and, and they bickered and, and they got jealous of each other. They controlled everything. They held the keys to death and life. That was the context that they're coming out of. And even if that specific generation had long since died, the vestiges of that remained and persisted in the lives of their children and grandchildren and threatened to raise its ugly head as they prepared to enter the promised land. Because remember, the promised land itself was, was far from empty, filled with foreign gods regulating all those same aspects of life, right? Uh, the, the, the rain, the crops, fertility, life, death. And the challenge of remaining faithful to the one God would be enormous, especially when faced with the incredible cultural pressures to conform, to give, add in these other gods of rain and, and harvest. Not to replace Yahweh, but just sort of to add a little something extra. Which sadly, of course, they ended up doing. Right? We know that from the Bible, all the stories of, of Israel's failure. And we know this from archaeology, too. I, back in the mid-70s, a, a team of archaeologists found this broken pottery somewhere uh, out in the desert. And it has this inscription up on the top that says... Uh, Amariah said to my Lord, may you be blessed by Yahweh of Samaria and by his Asherah. And there's got these pictures of these creepy looking, almost Egyptian looking gods here, part human, part animal. Right? It's disturbing, this blending, this syncretism. Yahweh and, and, and Asherah, we're just going to pull these pieces together. A total disregard of the first commandment. But we almost shouldn't be surprised because I can't emphasize enough how strong that temptation was once they entered the promised land to blend these different gods together, to cave into cultural pressure on this foundational component of their faith. But Yahweh plus anyone or anything else leaves you with nothing. Yahweh doesn't head up a team of gods. right? He's not chief among many other gods. He doesn't share his rule or his throne with anyone. He alone is God and there is none other. 
But the pressures to violate this commandment remain just as strong for us here still today, right? They just take on different forms. Like, we don't till the ground with a plow, most of us anyway. We work in office buildings. Nobody offers sacrifices to river gods. We build dams and we construct canals. We have weathermen who tell us when it's going to rain. We can travel to the moon. We can predict which way the wind is going to blow. But all this technological know-how hasn't lifted us out of the mire of idolatry at all. It's just created more subtle forms of it. Now, it's really as obvious as someone scribbling idolatrous comments on a, on a piece of pottery. In our context, the first commandment drives more at issues of the human heart, attitudes and beliefs that may actually never reveal themselves externally in our actions at all. And if there is one God we consistently put before Yahweh, it's the false God of control. The illusion, that is, that that we can control the world around us, that we can gain enough knowledge and collect enough information to be able to determine all possible future outcomes. For example, when we convince ourselves that if we can just eat all the right foods, then we'll never have any health problems, right? Like eating healthy is great, I have no problems with that, but it can quickly cross a line and become a false God that you've simply added into your faith, and no one would ever know. Or you could have two different people following exactly the same diet, and one person is just happy to be eating healthily, and the other person may have slowly, over time, turned eating in this manner into a form of an idol, convincing themselves, this is the sure path that will keep me from getting dementia or having Alzheimer's or getting cancer or whatever it is. Parents are particularly susceptible to this way of thinking. I know this, personally. Like if I can just get my child into the right school, or if I can just homeschool them a little longer, or if I can just keep them away from all the wrong influences, get them into all the right activities, then they'll never make any mistakes. They'll never question their faith. They'll never get into trouble. And Google just comes along and exacerbates all these problems, Right By creating this false sense of security that's based on our extensive, almost endless internet research on just about any thought that crosses our minds. right, Giving us confidence in our own abilities and understandings rather than a, a, a lasting, deep trust in God. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of these things in and of themselves. We try to eat healthily. We've we've homeschooled for years, right? We work hard to, to minimize and mitigate as many risks in our children's lives as possible. I love looking stuff up on Google. The challenge is catching our hearts before they run away from us and take all these good gifts and make them into something ultimate, Because you cannot control the future. And the harder you try to do so, the more likely you are to find yourself breaking the first commandment. Honestly, I think in our day and age, the the God we most commonly place before, next to, or in place of Yahweh is not some pagan deity, it's not some foreign God, it's ourselves. 
right? You and I are the ones we should be most concerned about. But God will not be mocked. And if we do not cut down this idol ourselves, he will do so for us. And that is a painful experience indeed. So perhaps this week it will be good to spend some time reflecting on this commandment and asking God to reveal in you the ways that you may be clinging too tightly to the steering wheel of life. Convinced that you can think or research or work your way into your desired future rather than trusting in God's sovereign plans and purposes, whatever those may be. Now, as I said at the beginning, Yahweh is our only true fount of justice in this world. These Ten Commandments are the first sweet drops of water to come from that spring. The bad news is that the people of Israel could never drink deeply enough from that well. They, they, they hung around the edge, they maybe dipped their spoons in and, and took taste, but their hearts were hardened by sin, and they could never truly see this gift for what it was. And we too are stuck in the same boat. We can never meet the high bar set by that first commandment. But Jesus, by his grace, nevertheless offers us to drink deeply from the well of living water, that we might experience God in all his fullness. He gives us water that we may no longer thirst, no longer be led astray into looking for help in all the wrong places. But more than that, in fact, Jesus says, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Talking about the Holy Spirit, right? God's gift to empower us to live out the commands we otherwise could not keep and to take this blessing of hope out into an unbelieving world. These are God's powerful words given to us for our blessing, our care, our good, to help us to bring glory to God in every part of our lives. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful for this gift that you have given to us of your holy word. Lord, so thankful that, that you reached out and rescued us from bondage and slavery to sin. Lord, that, that you gave us new life. Lord, that you took that first step. Lord, that you continue to do that in the midst of all the challenges of our lives. Lord, that, that when we put ourselves on the throne, when we put ourselves up as a God before you, Lord, help us to see that, to repent of it. Lord, be, be merciful towards us. Lord, help us to humble ourselves before you, calling on your name alone as holy, marvelous, and majestic. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.